Welcome to California State of Mind, a new politics and policy podcast from Cap Radio and Cal Matters. I'm Nicole Nixon, a reporter with Cap Radio in Sacramento. And I'm Elizabeth Aguilera, reporter for Cal Matters based in Los Angeles. We are doing this podcast to help explain how the decisions made at all levels of government affect your life. Especially during a pandemic when so much is in the air. Plus, we have a huge election going on right now. Oh yeah, the election. You may have noticed that's happening if you've spent any time at all on Facebook or Twitter recently. Right, there are so many ads, but also the posts that get shared by friends or family arguing their case for their candidate or posting things from other sources. You can't really miss that. Yeah, and unfortunately, a lot of what we're seeing on social media right now is just certifiably false information. And social media platforms have tried to address this in a variety of ways in anticipation of even more bogus info leading up to this year's election. They've also been in the hot seat, and a lot of folks don't believe they're doing enough to try to stop it. For sure. You know, I think about all of these misleading images and stories and videos on social media like wildfires, you know, which is something that we're all too familiar with in California this year. You know, it starts with one post, one spark, and it takes off and it spreads rapidly. And then by the time fact checkers or these social media companies notice it going around, it's already been seen by thousands or millions of people in some cases, and the damage is already done. Exactly, because, you know, people who've already read it or watched a video, they don't go back to find out if it's true or not. Right, and we all know that people share stories without even clicking through to read them first. Like, I'll admit I've retweeted a story without actually reading it. People... Just don't do a quick Google search sometimes to verify something that may make a wild claim or get an emotional reaction. That's why the companies are being pressured to do more, and all of them have responded in different ways by trying different things. Yeah, so for example, Facebook has partnered with some news organizations to try to provide third-party fact-checks on some of these misleading posts. So Cap Radio is actually one of those organizations, and I work with one of these third-party fact-checkers. His name is Chris Nichols. He's our PolitiFact California reporter, and he gave me a little look behind the curtain this week. Hi, Chris. Hey, Nicole. Good to be with you. So we're in 2020. Um, We've come quite a ways since 2016 when misinformation was just starting to pop up and people might not have realized it at the time. Remind us what the misinformation was like on Facebook and how it affected voters in 2016. Well, it was kind of like the Wild West. This was the first time, at least during an election in the United States, that we saw these really massive and really well-organized misinformation campaigns. These were Russian misinformation campaigns. They used bot accounts, which are those automated accounts that are made to look like real people. And those were used to spread and amplify false news. They even had campaigns that created fake Facebook groups. Those were used to generate outrage and divide people. It was really, really chaotic and something we've never seen in this country. You are one of these third-party fact-checkers that we hear quite a bit about that's fact-checking a lot of these viral posts on Facebook. And you're going to give us a little look at what you see when you're doing that. Right. So I'll go ahead and share a screen here. So what we're looking at is the -the behind-the-scenes database that Facebook gives us access to. These are all 
posts that were flagged by Facebook users. Okay, so let's look at this top one about、uh, Kamala Harris and Planned Parenthood. So it says, "Remember a few years ago when two undercover journalists exposed that Planned Parenthood was selling aborted baby body parts, a, a felony, and the California Attorney General prosecuted the journalists and never did anything against Planned Parenthood." That Attorney General was Kamala Harris. Right. And right. You clicked through, but it has this sort of screen that said, "False information checked by independent fact checkers." And you can click a button that says "See Why," and that will take you to Chris, your fact check. This is new. This is an example of something that Facebook has done since 2016. They've partnered with Politifact, who is our national partner at Cap Radio, plus USA Today, the the Associated Press, other independent news outlets to fact check false news on the platform. You said that this is still getting shared widely after you did the fact check, and I can see some of the comments that people are posting on this photo, that are saying things like, "I don't believe the fact checkers. Who's checking these so-called fact checkers?" And I think that that gets to the point of just how you know, in our country today, and I think social media is a big part of this. We have really gone into our own corners. We we can't agree what is a fact. You know the experts I've spoken with. They describe this sort of tribal mentality. If you support one side, you have facts on that side, and and you won't even think about agreeing with facts on the other side. So it's this really dangerous, poisonous kind of、uh, atmosphere that we've created、uh, in our democracy. If this is getting fact checked and found to be false. Why is Facebook putting the notice on it and not just removing the false information? Well, there's been this criticism about whether the social media companies have gone far enough in encountering misinformation. Facebook, in particular, has been criticized the most. You know, they have sort of taken this middle ground approach of adding these labels. That you know, when I spoke with UC Berkeley. Uh, computer science professor Hani Farid,、um, he talked about this idea of labeling. He said it's just not how the internet works. People aren't clicking on the link and going to read the Wikipedia page. People are reacting. They're reacting quickly. They're retweeting. They're liking. They're they're forwarding, and they move on to the next tweet. We are consuming a phenomenal amount of information online at at, a, at a, an incredibly fast pace. And this idea that everybody is very contemplative and thoughtful, and well, let me see if this is really true, but I forward this on, is simply untrue. So he's really skeptical that this, in the long term or even the short term,、uh, has any sort of positive impact. There are there are topics、uh, like when it comes to voting or COVID nineteen, where Facebook, other platforms have actually removed false information. So they have decided there are some categories where it's important enough to just get rid of it from the platform. These posts are shared so widely, and as journalists, we know that doing the reporting and the fact checking takes time and resources. So by the time your fact check actually gets put on top of that thing, it's already been shared hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of times, and then sometimes it's at the bottom. Right, and I think that gets to exactly what、uh, Professor Farid was talking about. That there has to be sort of a, a bigger fundamental change. What he has advocated for is that these companies need to change the underlying algorithm that that sort of 
feeds people the, the information that they see and maybe even feeds people the same sort of information in their political bubble. He said that in some ways, these companies could do this pretty easily and pretty quickly. They know how to engage people very quickly. But if they were to change those algorithms and have them value trusted information, trusted news outlets, then this would change almost overnight. And so, um, you know, the companies, obviously, they're, they're private businesses. They profit off of uh, the engagement and the sharing that we see on social media and they have not been willing to to change those algorithms, not to that extent. What else have social media companies done, especially others like Twitter and YouTube? And, and has it made a difference this year? Well, I think Twitter has been held out as maybe one of the platforms that's been more aggressive. They, along with the Chinese video app TikTok, they both banned paid political advertising on their sites last year. Uh, Facebook did not do that. Their CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, has famously said he doesn't want his company to be the arbiter of truth. That's not their job. Uh, YouTube, they've been a little bit less clear about their plans. They did take down a couple hundred uh, campaign videos from President Trump for violating their policies. They received a lot of criticism for that. Uh, conservative groups said they were biased. So that sort of gets back to this dilemma where if the companies leave up misinformation or what they consider misinformation, they get hammered. If they take it down, they get accused of censorship. Mm -hmm. That was a huge uh, issue last week with that story, the story that the New York posted about an alleged computer of Hunter Biden. Right. And uh, I saw that um, they actually froze some accounts of people who were sharing the story that led to those same complaints about censorship. I think the one thing that people should remember is these are these are private platforms and it's not like a, a government entity that is stopping speech. That's what censorship is. Um, these companies can do what they want on their own platforms. But they still would not be immune from criticism from conservatives for doing that. Exactly. And then potentially more regulation, which is also something that a lot of uh, critics say has to happen. Okay, so what can the average social media user do to avoid reading and believing and spreading misinformation? I think people are just very confused this year about everything that they're seeing shared on social media. I think there's some really basic things that people can do. If you see a really surprising or shocking headline, you can take that and you can Google it. You can find out whether other credible news outlets are actually covering that topic, or maybe it's just a one site that, that isn't credible. You have to be aware that there are a lot of websites out there that are purely partisan and they're producing these stories. They're intended to outrage you. They're assuming that you're not going to check to see if they're true. Most people don't check out these things because of confirmation bias. I spoke with San Diego State journalism professor Rebecca Nee. She studies social media and she had some advice. So I think, first of all, people have to put their own bias in check and understand that they're eager to, to get dirt on the opponent. But they have to also understand how these how serious these disinformation campaigns are and go to the source. Go to the source of the story. How 
can I broach this subject with a friend or family member that I see sharing a lot of these false posts on Facebook? Would you recommend, you know, having a conversation with them? Or should I just report the content, hope that it gets checked by a fact checker and not deal with it, spare that relationship maybe? Well, I I asked Professor Nee about this because I was curious about it. And her advice was go ahead and share the actual fact check. See if it's been researched. If it has and you can find the actual real facts to the story, go ahead and share that with your uncle or your cousin or whoever has shared the wrong information. It's one sort of direct but maybe still kind of gentle way to set the record straight. Good advice from our resident fact checker, PolitiFact California reporter Chris Nichols. Thanks for sharing your reporting, Chris. Thanks very much, Nicole. Elizabeth, I was floored by just how many eyeballs some of these false or misleading posts find on Facebook. Chris showed me that database and a post that he had fact-checked still got almost a million views in 24 hours. It's crazy. I believe that, and it's incredible. I think about that in contrast to what we do and how as media we can't put out information without checking it first and making sure we get our facts right. But on social, anyone can post whatever they want. Yeah. Well, another piece of advice Chris got from one of his experts was maybe just to delete Facebook. You know, if you find yourself doom scrolling and it's making you anxious, get yourself out of there, at least until after the election. Well, that would definitely get you away from the bogus posts. But it's a tough decision, especially right now. So many people are relying on social media like Facebook to stay in touch when they can't actually get together in real life because of the pandemic. Yeah, people are relying on it in that way more. And it was created to connect us. And in some ways, we are relying on it that way more than we have before. But there's still this problem of false information. So if you're out there listening and you have deleted your social media recently, let us know. What was it that pushed you over the edge to delete it? Was it a toxic election story or did you deactivate your account after watching The Social Dilemma on Netflix? I'm also curious if you felt a massive sense of relief or if you find yourself missing it already. Normally, we'd ask you to send us a DM on Twitter, but in this case, you can email us. I'm at Elizabeth at CalMatters.org. And I'm at Nicole.Nixon at CapRadio.org. You're listening to California State of Mind. We'll be right back. Welcome back to California State of Mind. I'm Nicole Nixon. And I'm Elizabeth Aguilera. There are a dozen propositions on this November's ballot, and that means voters are often being asked to weigh in and resolve long-standing political battles. This year alone, Nicole, we have Silicon Valley giants like Uber and Lyft. They put Proposition 22 on the ballot, and they're asking voters to make an exception and exempt their employees from California's labor laws. There's also Prop 21. This would give local governments more authority to enact renter protections. And this is something developers and residential property owners, among other groups, have pushed back against for decades. And there's also Prop 23. This measures a standoff between dialysis companies and a powerful healthcare worker union. Their feud is on the ballot for the second statewide general election in a row. 
This trend of these special interests taking their political fights to voters isn't new, of course, but the buckets and buckets of money being thrown at these ballot initiatives is a phenomenon that raises eyebrows year after year. I mean, the companies behind Prop 22, you know, Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash, they've raised more than $200 million on this issue. That's a record-breaking amount. That's totally right, Nicole. That's why I talked about the state of our pay-to-play democracy with Laura Rosenhall, she's a politics reporter for CalMatters, and also Mark Baldessari. He's president and CEO at the Public Policy Institute of California, which is a nonpartisan, nonprofit research institute that does a lot of polling on crucial issues in the state. Mark, Laurel, welcome to California State of Mind. Thanks, Elizabeth. So, Mark, this question's for you. Was there a tipping point moment in California when these political battles abandoned the legislature or the traditional spaces where policy issues would normally be resolved and sought the ballot as a place for a final answer? Yeah, the tipping point uh, was probably about 42 years ago when Proposition 13 was on the ballot in June 1978. Up to then, the initiative process um, had been used very sparingly. Recent history of California, last um, hundred years, the initiative process has been available and it was put in the constitution as something that would be used when things weren't working. But it went from that to something that is used all the time, pretty frequently. Every conversation like this somehow goes back to Prop 13, right? Um, Laurel, what do you think? What is going on with the ballot initiative process? When did it become about big money fights? Shout out to Alex Vassar, who is uh, who works at the California State Library and posts all kinds of interesting nuggets. He um, posted some examples from 1948, and among the initiatives that Californians voted on in 1948, there were there was one to regulate the commercial fishing. There was one concerning the brakemen who worked on railroads. There was one on the licensing of chiropractors, and perhaps my favorite, a proposition that would have allowed unescorted women to be served liquor at bars and restaurants, but only if they were seated at a table. (laughs) And that one failed. California voters did not vote for that. Um, So, you know, there always have been obscure things on our ballot because of the initiative process. But like Mark said, there was this turning point when it just became much more frequent. And now what we see is that the initiative process is used by interest groups that want to exert their power punish their enemies, gain a leg up, do an end run around the legislature. There's all sorts of sort of political agendas that happen here. And frequently it can be a way to kind of override the legislature rather than just do something when the legislature won't act. Right. Elizabeth, one thing that I wanted to mention to put is um, not just in historical context, but national context, roughly half the states in the United States have the initiative process. There's only one that uses the initiative today with the frequency at which we do, and that would be Oregon. Um, Most of the other places, it's very infrequent as well, for the most part. New York, no, you know, other places, uh, other big states, nothing like what we have. Well, it's definitely unique to California and especially the way it's evolved, because Laurel, I wanted to ask you about your recently published story that specifically looks at how SEIU United Health Workers West 
one of the state's most powerful labor unions, is wielding its influence via the initiative process. I mean, what did you find out about that? Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, over the last decade, this is a union that's really turned to the ballot initiative as a strategy. It's a political strategy for them. And in some cases, it's just the the union is starting the process and paying a few million dollars to gather signatures, but then negotiating with their adversaries in the healthcare world along the way and pulling back their initiatives. In other cases, like we see now with Prop 23 on the California ballot, which um, is sponsored by that union and would regulate dialysis centers. So in those cases, they're taking it all the way to the voters. But in all these instances, this is a union that is really using its power to put initiatives before voters or threaten to put initiatives before voters in its professional dealings. And most of its ballot measures in California, both at the local level and at the state level, are targeted at healthcare businesses where it's trying to organize more workers. This is perceived by the opponents as basically a hardball political move. I've covered some of those previous initiatives where it's a back and forth between the union and the companies, and there's a lot of accusations about just wanting to organize or just wanting to get in the door. Um, But they've definitely grown their influence, or at least their name recognition in that way. I wanted to ask you both a question that regular voters might have, right? On one hand, you can argue that it's a good thing for voters to weigh in on these crucial issues. But is it really an effective system that benefits the everyday Californian? Like, how does this trickle down to them? It's a power that they want to have. And majorities of Californians in our polls have always said that they want to have that ability to weigh in. And from time to time, when we ask um, uh, in in those polls, they uh, also feel like they might do a better job making public policy than the legislature. And that's a feeling that, that cuts across party lines, regions of the state, demographic groups. You know, We want the initiative process. We think we can do a good job with it. On the other hand, most Californians, uh, two out of three in our most recent poll, feel that the initiative process in California today is controlled by special interests a lot. You know, the players are uh, big players in, in state politics. They are the organized labor, they are organized business, they are folks who are very comfortable and confident in um, working through the legislative process and the election process and now the initiative process. Voters uh, approach initiatives on the ballot with a certain amount of skepticism. And most initiatives that are placed on the ballot won't be passed. Right. So, Laurel, what do you think, given what Mark just said, is it really an effective system that benefits you know, your everyday Californian? Because it sounds like maybe they don't see it that way. I think it can benefit Californians because there certainly are initiatives that um, go to the ballot that people get really passionate about and that have become these sort of defining policies and belief systems in our state, right? And like whether you're thinking of Prop 13 in the 1970s or Prop 8 and marriage equality and the, you know, tumultuous chain of events that that, you know, was a part of. So I think the upside for voters is that initiatives give them skin in the game on policy decisions that they might otherwise 
not be aware of or not participate in. And when I just think about sort of anecdotally how much people I know in my life ask me about initiatives versus how much they ask me about bills in the legislature, the difference is vast. People want to understand initiatives because they have to vote on them. People largely ignore the legislature, you know, unless they have sort of a pet passion issue, they ignore the legislature because that's sort of somebody else's problem, somebody else's decision. So while the process is flawed, I do think that there are upsides because it gives ordinary citizens an opportunity to engage with their government and with the future of their state in a way that they might otherwise not do at all. Mark, I'm going to ask you this next question. You answered this a little bit in your last answer, but I want to get back to this because, you know, my colleagues and I hear this every election cycle, right? And Laurel just touched on this. The propositions are confusing. You know, people are calling Laurel saying, like, what should I do or what does this really mean? But based on your polling, what do voters really think about the initiative process? So in our most recent poll, 82% of likely voters so those are the people who are most engaged in uh, politics in California, said that the ballot wording for citizens' initiatives is often too complicated and confusing for voters to understand what happens if the initiative passes, right? 82%, 55% said there are too many propositions on the state ballot. No matter what, they're liberal, moderate, conservative. This is a lot of work for the voters and sometimes frustrating. There are so many major players behind this year's initiatives, right? SEIU, Uber, the bail bond industry, commercial property owners. Do voters care who's behind these things? Do they, does that make a difference in what they think about the initiatives or how they make a decision? I'm interested in Laurel's answer. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Laurel? I think they do care. I mean, I think a lot of these campaigns can be very deceiving and reporting out where the money's coming from can be helpful. I think we're seeing a really interesting new twist on the big money ballot measure campaign in Prop 22. And that's the one that's sponsored by Uber, Lyft, and a couple of other gig companies. Um, they've broken the record for the amount of money on a, on a ballot measure campaign at coming in at close to $200 million. Wow. And yeah, it's huge money. And that one is just really interesting because those are companies that before even the campaign started, they had the cell phone number, email address, home address of you know millions of voters in California just because those people are also customers of their company. And so now we're seeing a, a kind of new twist on the corporate ballot measure campaign where they're starting off with direct access right into your you know purse or your pocket. I mean, they didn't even have to buy a list of you know voter addresses to send the mail to. I totally agree. I think they care a lot about where the money um, is coming from on the, the yes and the no side. And you know I, I give a lot of credit to the Secretary of State for making that information more transparent in recent years. When voters are asked to make decisions about candidates, they look to see whether there's a D or an R or what letter is next to their name. You don't have that for an initiative. People are, are, are looking for examples of, of who's endorsing this and who's opposing this. 
Yeah. And I think that Mark touched on a really important aspect that makes this so Californian and also so confusing for voters is that there usually is not a super clear partisan divide on these propositions. And I, I do think that makes it harder for a lot of voters because you don't have those obvious signifiers of, well, I know I'm in this camp or I know I'm in that camp. And it also is, I think, an illustration of the politics of California, which, you know, there are there are places and there are instances where our politics are very, you know, red blue, and that's the dynamic. But there are many, many, many instances in California politics where the dynamic is much more you know, ideological and not necessarily partisan. So the, you know, the fight might be a, you know, labor versus business fight or a business versus environment kind of fight and not necessarily super clear cut on the partisan politics. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you, Laurel Rosenhall from Cal Matters and Mark Baldessari from the Public Policy Institute of California. Thanks, Elizabeth. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Nicole, I thought it was interesting that even though voters complain about the propositions and the big money behind them, they believe it's an important responsibility. They take it seriously to try to understand the proposals versus seeing what the legislature does and the decisions they make as someone else's job. Yeah, well, people want to be informed voters on these issues, but it's hard when there are so many ads and so many conflicting messages about these initiatives. But lucky for you, our listeners, our organizations have been doing a lot of reporting on them over the past few months. You can check out calmatters.org slash election 2020 to find out more. Or you can go to capradio.org slash voter guide. And here at Cap Radio, we actually borrowed some of CalMatters' one-minute proposition explainer videos because they're so awesome. Thanks, Nicole. We'd love to hear from listeners as we make this podcast. So if you're not deleting Twitter, you can find us at Your Golden State. I will always be on Twitter. (laughs) Thanks for listening. California State of Mind is a collaboration of Cal Matters and Cap Radio. It's edited by Nick Miller and produced by Jen Picard. Sally Schilling is our executive producer. Devin Cortan is the technical director. Chris Hagen is our digital editor. Chris Bruno and Margarita Noriega are our masters of marketing. Our social media is run by Emmy Gilbert and Courtney Fong. Dave Lesher is Cal Matters editor, and Joe Barr is Cap Radio's chief of content. Our theme song is Melifera Ligustica by Isaac Joel. Make sure you don't miss any episodes. Hit that subscribe button. It's free, and you'll get notified every Friday of a new episode. That's all for now. Thanks again for listening to California State of Mind. See you next week. Thank you.